If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to Galatians chapter 3. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, if you want to turn to page 700, sorry, I think it's 793. I think I wrote that down correctly. Um, If I didn't get it 793, maybe it's 973. So it's somewhere there. Go to the table of contents. You'll find it. I apologize. Sometimes my mind is not everything it should be. So that gives you great confidence now, doesn't it? Uh, Most of this last work week, uh, I was uh, in Calgary helping my mom with a a variety of, of different things. And I suppose given the context that we're just sort of two months from my dad's death, It shouldn't probably be a surprise that a part of my time there, a lot of my time there seemed to involve a lot of different memories kind of popping up. Uh, One of the chores on my list, uh, when I got there, my mom literally has a list of chores for me to do. And so one of the chores on my list when I got there Monday night and she said, here's your list, uh, was to fix a, a tire, to get a tire fixed. And so as I was taking the tire off the car on Tuesday morning to take it to the tire store, um, all of a sudden I kind of had this flashback to being about an eight-year-old little boy in the exact same garage, um, and I could kind of picture sort of me sitting there as my dad was teaching my oldest brother how to change a tire. You know, it was just kind of one of those moments of, I'm eight years old again. Wow, I had hair. You know, I mean, it was really kind of a cool thing in that sense. I had another memory that came about from about the same time frame of, of being about eight years old. Now, I realize I, don't, I haven't said in the nine half years that our family has been here, I haven't talked that much about hockey as much as I have so many hockey illustrations that I think would work so well. And I realize like three of you would go, oh yeah, and the rest of you would do, what's he talking about? So, but I am going to use a hockey one, just got to give me a second. See, growing up in Calgary, hockey was a big thing, and you don't just play in Calgary, you don't just play hockey on the grass or on the, on the ice, you play it on the grass, you play it on driveways, anywhere you can, you play hockey. So when I was eight years old, we were playing hockey on the driveway that if you were in my parents' house and looked out the window this way, there was a driveway, and we used to play hockey there. I was about eight years old, and when we were playing hockey, the tennis ball we were using for the puck, because you're on a driveway, a puck doesn't work very well, you use a tennis ball, it kind of bolted out into the street, you know, shot out into the street. And so I did what anybody who wants to really play the game does, you go after the puck, which meant I went from the driveway into the street. Now, those of you that are astute probably realize that cars also like to be on the street. And so when I went from the driveway into the street, there was this screech of brakes. The mother of one of the kids playing hockey happened to be the one driving the car. She slammed on her brakes. And she didn't just slam on her brakes. She got out of the car. And out of love and concern and maybe a little bit of anger, shared with us some forceful words of correction. She clearly wanted what was best for us. That drove her. Now, we've mentioned a few times as we've been walking through the book of Galatians, and and we've also talked a little bit about why did Martin Luther put up the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg 
we said both Paul and Luther kind of had this deep concern for people. Okay? They, they loved the people that were under their pastoral charge. They, they cared for them. They were so concerned for them. In, the, in a similar vein, I, I pray that as, as time goes forward, that you, if you call Central Home, will know that, that our elders have a, have a deepening concern for you. I, I hope that that becomes something that becomes more and more evident as, as time goes on, that you know that the elders of Central are committed to helping you experience and know God's best. Okay, that's why Martin Luther put those things on there. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. He was concerned that these people would know God's best best back to the hockey mom for a minute because of her love because of her concern she used with us probably words a little stronger than she might have normally used if she was just talking to us individually and I'm not sure if she learned that principle from the Apostle Paul or not, but as we come to Galatians 2, Galatians 3, excuse me, as Paul kind of has finished his sort of defense of himself in Galatians 1 and 2, and when he comes to Galatians 3, and we'll kind of say, you're the Galatians this morning. I probably shouldn't say that because you were then going to interpret me saying some things about you, so I'll... All of you are the Galatians. We'll do it that way. This is equal opportunity. Paul is going to say directly to the Galatians some strong words out of love and concern. Words that quite honestly have some measure of bite to them. But this might be the kind of bite that a, that a mama bear might use when the cubs are running to the edge of the cliff and the mama bear bites them to pull them back. Or maybe the, the kind of words a mama bear might use when someone's going to run out in front of a fast-moving car. Okay, so Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 starts this way. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, I'm sure what you want to have happen anytime you come to church is the pastor to stand up and say, you're foolish. You're foolish. And literally, if you're wondering what the word foolish means, guess what it means? Foolish, yeah, that's, that's what it means. You could also translate it, I guess if you want, you could say ignorant. Not exactly flattering words. If that's not enough, if, and that may not sound very loving at this point, we said but they were loving. Well, there's a guy by the name of J.B. Phillips who 70 years ago decided to paraphrase parts of the New Testament. And when he came to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he paraphrased the opening of the verse this way. Oh, you dear idiots in Galatia. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's how he started. And he kind of asked the question, hang on a second. Why would Paul use words that could be paraphrased that way? Was this sort of Paul being silly? Was he playing a game? Did he do this lightly? I don't think it was, no, I don't think he did it lightly. I think Paul felt an enormous burden. He clearly understood there's an issue. Okay? And the issue clearly was the gospel was being distorted and the Galatians were being heard and that's not what Paul wanted. So he used some fairly strong words. He, he said some things that none of us, I mean, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning going, I really hope somebody calls me a fool today. I don't really want to be known as an idiot. But Paul used some strong words to get their attention, to make some things very clear to them so they didn't miss this. 
So part of the question becomes, what were the reasons for his strong words? What did he want them to pay attention to? To go back to the hockey mom again. She expressed her concern really in two ways. One way she expressed her concern was she wanted us to know that there was a very real danger. That if we sort of went from the driveway to the street, there was a danger. She's like, watch it, there's danger here. Be aware. Another part of what she expressed, another reason why she expressed her concern was, in essence, she was saying, boys, you know better. It hadn't been that long in time since there had been an accident. There was a, there's an intersection about three or four houses down. And there had been an accident, and it happened early in the morning, so all of us walking to school walked by the accident. And we saw the person with blood coming out of their head and all those things. Like, cars and people, when you're a person and you're hit by a car, that's not good. You know this. In a similar way, as Paul comes and writes the rest of verse 1, he's kind of like, there's danger and you know better. Read with me all of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, why did Paul write this? What were the reasons that led him to say, you foolish Galatians, you dear idiots? Well, reason number one would simply be this. There was a danger. Like the hockey mom said, there's danger. Paul's saying, there's danger. Okay, the danger would simply be this. If you look at the words in the question, who has bewitched you? There's something there we need to pay attention to. If you go back and think about when we started this series, and we said this a few times, in Galatians 1, the first message of this series, Paul kind of pointed his finger at people that you could label as false teachers or you could call them gospel distorters. They were people. And he kind of says, there's an issue. They're, They're a problem. But as he gets here into this question, who's bewitched you, Paul's kind of going from the people side to saying there's something behind it. Okay, the word bewitched is a word from the world of magic. And Paul seems to be using it in a way to say, hey, there's going to be things that you and I physically don't see, like we see each other, but there's other things we don't physically see. There are evil spiritual influences that are at work around us, he's saying. And he's asking the question, who bewitched you? Please understand this about life. We are living literally in the midst of a spiritual battle in which there are evil demons and there really is an enemy of our souls. Okay? We maybe don't think about it. We don't necessarily see it like we see each other. But literally, folks, Satan and his minions, Satan and his demons want to be actively engaged against us. And they would love nothing more than to see us let go of the pure gospel and to hitch our wagon to a distorted gospel. That is a very real danger. And Paul is saying, watch it. Now there's an important implication question here I think we can't avoid and we need to answer. 
And they ask the question this way, who or what is influencing us? A lot of things can influence us. Okay, we can be impacted by peer pressure. That happens at all levels of life. It's not just a thing that happens at school. It can happen in all kinds of things. But Paul's here not talking just about people influencing you, influencing me. He's talking about evil forces we don't necessarily see. And what we need to understand is what are the things influencing us? Here's a thing that makes me shudder. Satan and his demons are very powerful. Okay, they were bewitching the Galatians. Where do you and I get off thinking that we can deal with that and that's not going to be a challenge? There's a real danger. And so we need to ask the question, what is influencing me? What kinds of things are grabbing at my soul? Reason number one, why would Paul use strong words? Because there's a very real danger and we better pay attention. Second reason why Paul, I think, used strong words, in essence, kind of like the hockey mom, he's saying, you know better than this. Where are you getting that from? Well, look at the last chunk, the last sort of sentence of verse one when it talks about the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, hey, you heard the gospel story. You know, Paul and Barnabas had, had shared with them the story about Jesus coming and Jesus going to the cross and dying on the cross in their place for their sins. They, they knew that story. They had heard that story. But the reason Paul reminds them of that isn't just to point out, hey, there's a little point in history here. Historical data, you need these things of history. No, the reason he shares the story is because of what Jesus did on the cross has as much impact today as it did the day Jesus died. When it says in the verse, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified, I don't want to get overly technical or geeky here, but the word that's translated crucified is actually a participle used as a verb. It's a verbal participle. And it's used in what's known as the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense in Greek is important because it means the, the event happened. It was completed. Jesus was crucified. That's a done deal. But that action, that completed action, has ongoing results, has ongoing influence, has ongoing implication. See, Paul's saying, you saw that Jesus was crucified. You saw that he died. You, you've heard that. You know that. You know why he died. But please understand, Paul says, that's meant to mark your life from this point forward. Do you understand that? That's what he's saying, that Jesus died and that has an impact. Now, to help you see that impact, what I want to do is ask you to think with me through a story found in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. And the reason I want to go to that story is because it would appear there's an illusion at the end of verse 1 of Galatians 3 that there's an allusion to this story. Now, the story in Numbers 21 is pretty short. God had just done some significant things for the people of Israel, and you come to the story, the scene we're looking at is Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. Okay, God had done an amazing thing. What happens? Well, as is typical in the book of Numbers, the people start to whine and grumble and complain about God and their food. And they're like, we would have been better off if we stayed in Egypt. 
How does God respond? God sends a bunch of fiery serpents. And those serpents weren't just kind of there so that you could have a, you know, reptile show and tell. Those serpents came to bite people. And if you were bit by one of those serpents, you died. That kind of got the people's attention, at least the ones that were still living. And they looked around and realized there's a problem here. And they realized, you know what the problem is? It's us. We sinned. So they run to Moses and they ask Moses to ask God to take away the serpents, which seems like a logical thing to do. And God responds in verse 8 of Numbers 21 by saying this. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now, here's what I think we need to understand from the story in Numbers 21 that connects to Galatians 3 that connects to our lives. Okay, very simply, from Numbers 21, very simply, if you want to live, okay, you're bit by a snake, what do you do? You look at the raised up snake. Life is found there. So if you want to live, you've got to look there. Same idea, if you in essence, go to Galatians through, and he's, he's bringing up this thing about Jesus, and you know that he was publicly crucified. You saw him that way. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is, is if you want to live life, if you truly want to live, where do you look? You look to the crucified Savior. You look to Jesus. You focus on Jesus. He's the one you zoom in on. Say, Why? Why does looking at Jesus make such a difference? Why is that important? Well, behind the idea of Christ crucified, okay, behind there, there's at least two major biblical truths that I think we need to remember. Okay, one is this. Because Jesus Christ was crucified, because he died in our place for our sins. That meant our sin was dealt with. But in Jesus dealing with our sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, basically, he took our sin, and in exchange, we get his righteousness. We're declared by God as righteous. Instead of being sinners separated from God, now God says, no, you're righteous and you're with me. You and I, because Jesus died on the cross, we have standing before him. We're declared righteous. When you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you are declared righteous before God. Your sin debt is gone. It's done. Now, that sounds like a completed action. And in that sense, that's true. When you trust Christ, that's completed but the second biblical truth kind of flows from that, kind of the implication of that, and that's this. The crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus, is also the one who can empower us or can enable us or can move in our lives so that we can now live a righteous life. We were declared righteous. God said you're righteous and now Jesus can move in your life, through your life, so you go forward in life, not living in a way contaminated by sin. You can actually go forward in your life living in freedom, living in righteousness. 
living the whole life. See, the way to go forward, the way to live in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ is by looking to Jesus, by him being the center in that sense of your life. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, kind of explains it, kind of gives it in picture form when he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, you enter into a relationship with God, you become declared righteous, not so you can just sit around and say, look at me, aren't I impressive? No, you enter into a relationship so you can live. Verse 1 is saying, live, run, let's get at it. And verse 2 tells us, how do we do that? Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus. Okay, he's the founder. Okay, he's the one that makes it possible for us to be declared righteous, but he's also what? He's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that completes us for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, when Jesus died, not only Christ crucified, does that mean you and I can be justified? You and I can be saved. It also means you and I are empowered to actually live life. Why did Paul use strong words? Paul used strong words in part because there's a very real danger. But Paul also used strong words to say, you know where life is found. It is found by you focusing on Jesus. So let's do that. Let's focus on Jesus. He's the center. He's where we look. Question. If we're to go forward in life, and we're supposed to do that by focusing on Jesus, how do we do that? I mean, we've already said that we have a very clear and present danger. Satan and demons and all these evil things want to make it hard for us to do this. They'd already bewitched the Galatians. How do you and I, and what is Paul going to say to the Galatians, how do you go forward when there's a lot of things against you? How do you do this? Paul is going to raise from verse 2 to verse 9 sort of two key things that we need to do so we can get there. Now, verses 2 to 5, he's actually going to raise both of them. Okay, so we're going to look at verses 2 to 5, but we're going to kind of look at them. They're intertwined, but we're going to look at one and then the other, okay? So key number one, how do we go forward? How do we do this? How do we keep Jesus central? We do this by walking with the Spirit. Okay, key number one, how do I keep Jesus central? How do I keep him the essential focus of my life? By walking with the Spirit, okay? Verses two to five, Paul is gonna ask a bunch of rhetorical questions, okay? Now, the questions, it's probably fairly obvious what the implied answer is, but what I want us to do is we read verses two to five, I wanna ask you to zoom in right now just on the Holy Spirit, okay? Just what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you only this, verse 2 says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now just walk with me through these verses. Can I understand why is the Holy Spirit so important? Well, in verse 2, Paul's kind of focused on the issue of how does a person go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, okay? That's kind of where he's starting. And and to use the words of John chapter 3, maybe you could phrase the question, when Jesus met Nicodemus and Jesus told Nicodemus, basically, you've got to be born a second time or you've got to be born again, and Nicodemus is going, how does that work? You can't go back into your mother's womb. How does this make sense? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus then told him you've got to be born by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit does something. And here in Galatians 3, Paul's saying the exact same thing. How were you born again? How did you get life? By the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. Okay, He's the one that takes our sin-damaged, not just sin-damaged heart, but our sin-dead heart that can't pump. And the Holy Spirit takes that out away from us and literally gives us a new heart that beats new life into us. Okay, the Holy Spirit does that. But once you have life, what do you do with it? When He does this transplant, what do you do? Well, that's really where verse 3 goes. Now, verse 3, again, gets back to the idea of you're foolish. In essence, he's saying, you guys know this. You're smarter than this. You shouldn't be fooled. You shouldn't be bewitched by this. You know this. I mean, think about it. If the Holy Spirit, in verse 3, sort of the intent is, if the Holy Spirit is the cardiovascular surgeon who gave you a new heart, who should you turn to for advice on how to live with that heart? Now, I'm not trying to pick on lawyers. We have a few lawyers in the room. I'm not trying to pick on you but you're not cardiovascular surgeons, okay? If you have a heart transplant, who do you pay attention to? A lawyer who's going to give you a list of rules to follow? A list of laws? Or the doctor who literally did the operation? The point of verse 3 is you and I need the Holy Spirit. You and I need to focus on Him, follow His advice. You know, Paul wants to say, as we go through the rest of the book of Galatians, Paul wants to talk an awful lot about walking with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so today, he just sort of brings it up in this section. He's going to come back to it. But please understand his point. If we're going to walk in step with the gospel, if we're going to walk in the freedom that we have in Christ, we walk with the Holy Spirit. Real quickly, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 is kind of a summary statement of what Paul wants to say, and he says this, if we live by the Spirit, if He's our source of life, He's what gave us our heart, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul's saying that's how you live. How do you keep Jesus central? By walking with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Part of what that means is that we take what the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible We hear his voice because he's the author behind it and his commands and his directions and we seek to submit ourselves and to follow those things. Okay, that's kind of what that means. But why would you want to do it? Why would you want to follow the Holy Spirit? Why? Verses four and five are going to give us two more reasons. Why would we want to walk with the Holy Spirit? Okay, reason number one is kind of this. Verse 4 is going to tell us suffering, okay? I wish this wasn't true, but across this room, 
people are going to suffer. We suffer for a lot of different reasons. Some of those are results of direct consequences of things we've done. Some of those is just simply life happens and we suffer. I think the point of verse 4 is if you're following the Holy Spirit, suffering for so many of us can seem like such a waste. But Paul says it's not in vain. If you are walking with the Holy Spirit, the suffering that you are experiencing, the worst thing in your life isn't vain. Somehow, through walking with the Holy Spirit, even in the worst moments of life, God does incredible things. But if you don't walk with the Holy Spirit, you say, phooey on that, I'm going to go do my own thing. Then your suffering is simply suffering. And it is empty. Why would I want to walk with the Holy Spirit? Because He, in the midst of the worst things in my life, things can still be accomplished. Second reason, kind of flowing out of verse 5, Verse 5, Paul's most likely drawing our attention when it says the one who does miracles. He's probably referring to God the Father. So in verse 5, he's telling us, hey, God the Father is the one that sends the Holy Spirit. And why does the Holy Spirit come? So that we can keep focused on Jesus. How do you engage in a fight with Satan and his demons? By yourself? No, verse 5 is reminding us that if you walk with the Holy Spirit, you don't just get the Holy Spirit because He's there to point your attention to Jesus. And oh, by the way, who sent the Holy Spirit? God the Father. You want to engage in the battle of life, how do you do it? With the Trinity. How do you take on the clear and present danger? By having the Trinity with you. Huge thing. Key number one, walk with the Holy Spirit. That's how we do this. That's how we stay focused on Jesus. Second key thing, how else do we do it? Well, we walk by faith with the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you go back to verses two to five, you go back to those rhetorical questions, the implied answer seems to keep coming back to the issue of faith. Verse 2 and verse 5 both kind of raise the issues. You know, how did you get the Holy Spirit? By committing myself to the Lord Jesus, by faith, by turning from sin to God and trusting the Lord Jesus. That's verse 2. Verse 5 says, why did God send the Holy Spirit? How does God send the Holy Spirit? Same thing. When you trust yourself, when you, by faith, trust and trust yourself to God and God alone. The Holy Spirit comes into your life by faith. There's a connection between us walking with the Holy Spirit and faith. Those, they're tied. They have to be. That's how we're supposed to live. Now, at this point, some of the bewitched people would say, hang on a second, or some of the false teachers would say, Paul, you're saying this by faith thing, and that sounds really cool, but that sounds like you're adding something new. Instead of giving the law and Moses the respect they deserve. You're saying we got to live by faith. That sounds new. And Paul says, um, let's actually do a history lesson. 
Let's go back even beyond Moses and the law and see how it plays out. And so verses 6 to 9, what does he do? He raises the issue of a guy by the name of Abraham. Actually, let me read verse 5 through 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And Scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. Okay, Abraham is this huge towering figure in the Old Testament. Truth is, in our world, Abraham is a huge towering figure. And so Paul's kind of like, let's look at Abraham. How does he function? How did he operate? Well, Abraham was reconciled to God. How? By faith. Okay, verse 6 is referring back to a scene in Genesis chapter 15 that we look back at in the spring. How did Abraham become justified? By faith. And the thing is, Though Abraham is viewed today as the father of Israel, so the father of Judaism and also as the father of Islam through Ishmael, Paul says, you're not a son of Abraham by genetic family tree issues. You're a son of Abraham by faith. See, this faith thing isn't new. It's always been around. It's always how God operated. We trust ourselves to Him and we're saved. And to make that clear, He raises in verse 8, you kind of zoom in on verse 8, hey, this thing about the Gentiles, back in Genesis chapter 12, literally verse 3, God said, this is how it works. I want to reach the whole world. This isn't new. This is what I've always said. And in verse 9, see, people sometimes thought if they did the law, they'd be blessed by God. If they performed and got everything right, they'd be blessed by God. Verse 9 says, no, the blessing of God comes through those who trust themselves to God. How should you live? So you keep Jesus central. You do it by faith. You do it by committing yourself to the Lord Jesus and staying in that trust, staying in that faith. Let me wrap it up. Let me ask you to answer a question. What is your focal point? Why did I run out into the street and cause breaks to screech and then be on the receiving end of strong words? Well, the simple answer is I was focused on the puck. I was focused on the tennis ball. Okay, If you play hockey, that's kind of important. That should be part of your focus. But we're not playing hockey. We're trying to live life. So what should you be focused on? In a competitive and battle-warped world that we live in, Paul is saying, hey, put aside other focal points. There's a lot of options in our world. That there's a lot of things we could focus on. But he's saying, focus on Jesus. 
The way to go forward in life is to keep your eyes on Jesus. So the big question is, what are you focusing on? Last fall, we did a series on, called Greater Than, and we looked at a whole lot of things that can compete in our lives with God. I mean, I think the first four were money, sex, control, power. We looked at a whole lot of things. Are those what you're focused on? Is those what I'm focused on? Maybe another way to ask the same question of what are you focused on is to ask the question, what do you think gives you the good life? What is it that you have to have so you have a good life? Folks, I realize it's the end of the sermon. I realize lunch is going through your minds and you're thinking, I just want to get out of here. Please don't miss answering this question. And maybe instead of lunch, maybe instead of the rest of your day being about other things, it's time to say time out. How do I answer that question? Because if you're focused on something or someone else other than Jesus you're probably going to experience a lot of screeching breaks or maybe something worse. Paul wrote these words because he wants what's best for you, but more importantly than that, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words because the Holy Spirit is committed to bringing what's best into our lives, God's best. And the only way we really get to God's best is if we entrust ourselves, we put our faith in Christ and we live our lives focused on Jesus. What is your focal point? God is inviting us to freedom. He says, here's how you get it. Focus on my son. What are you focusing on? Let's pray.